Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from an American journalist with a special interest in voice technology. I literally made it so I know exactly what it is and what it isn't. And yet, to a degree, I personify the dad bot, not necessarily as my dad, but as some kind of a little being. And I also have noticed that when other people are using the dad bot, if the dad bot does well, I feel proud of him. That was James Vlahos talking about a chatbot he created to keep the memory of his father alive. He spoke to my colleague Elaine Moore in San Francisco about what inspired the idea and about the potential uses and misuses of this rapidly evolving technology. James, a lot of us are familiar with voice tech thanks to voice assistants like Siri and Alexa, but your involvement is bound up in a really personal experience connected to your father. What was it that sparked your interest? Well, the very original interest, if you can believe it, was not my father, and I'll get to that, but was Barbie, the uh, popular girl's doll from Mattel. And I had started thinking about how interfaces like Siri and Alexa have personalities, and I was looking for a story as a journalist to explore that. And I came upon this project that was still under development, which was to create a talking AI-powered version of Barbie. And I met the people who were building Barbie's brain and giving her the opportunity to have back-and-forth conversations with girls. And I did that whole project and learned a lot about the process of how AI personalities are built. And so that was really the first chapter of the story. That was part of the original impetus to write the book. Then the second chapter was a sad chapter. It was finding out that my father had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And Right at sort of the same time I was grappling with that news, I found out that the programming platform that had been used to create Barbie's brain was now going to be accessible to someone like me if they wanted to learn it. And so I was thinking about things like, oh, this would be really interesting to build a conversational character on this. And I was thinking about doing a version of myself. And then I realized that was a really stupid idea because I already live inside my own brain. Meanwhile, I was starting to lose my father to this disease. And I thought, what if I could make sort of a conversational avatar of sorts of him that helped to share his life story and even brought across elements of his personality through back and forth messaging and audio clips. You created something that you call DadBot. Can we listen to a little bit of DadBot speaking? Yes, let me play something for you. The meeting of mom was... I had a rehearsal, an afternoon rehearsal. In the morning, I'd been playing tennis and was wearing tennis whites. And I came bounding down the stairs of the theater toward the stage saying, tennis anyone? And mom thought I was the biggest jerk in the world. How long did it take to make Dab? But where do you start with a project like that? It started with just learning how to do the programming. And I used a platform that's designed not for programmers and coders per se, because I'm not that, but it's really built for people like me, for writers and comedians or playwrights or anybody from sort of a more of a liberal arts background. And it's funny because this is something that whether you're talking 
inside of Google or Apple or Amazon, they have these creative teams that are not technical people per se. They're more artistic and creative people who are trying to infuse personality into chatbots, into Siri and whoever. So I was using something like that. Nonetheless, you know, there's a learning curve to do that. So that's happening on one side. That's kind of the technical track. The other side was I was sitting down with my father to do an oral history project. And I did 12 plus hours of interviews. I had them all professionally transcribed. And this was just sitting and having him tell his life story. And that helped me have a lot of the content that I was later going to infuse into the dad bot. You were interested in this device at a time when your father was very ill. How did it change your relationship as the time progressed? Well, it was a very nice project to do. It was something that had been on the back burner for a long, long time in the family. Like, oh, we got to sit down and have dad tell his life story. This certainly was, you know, the prod to do it. Like, we're going to lose him within a year. And I came away from it feeling that whether you're doing a highly technical thing, like creating a dad bot or just the old fashioned oral history, that it's just very valuable to sit. You just don't do it in the course of daily life. Like, tell me your stories. So it was sad, but it was valuable. And I think we both enjoyed doing it. Did he get a chance to hear it himself? He did. He, once I had sort of the first working prototype of the dad bot together, I was able to have him, actually had my mom interact with it while he was present. Uh, And the thinking was that it would just be a little too much of uh, turn his mind around if he's trying to have a conversation with himself. But he got to see it and he got to appreciate what it did. And he didn't feel like it was a product that he was going to use himself, but he was glad that there was going to be something that his descendants could use and, you know, his grandchildren could interact with. How accurate was it? Was there anything that Dadbot ever said that was quite jarring? Well, I mean, you had it was inaccurate in the sense that it was a hundred times stupider than my real father. You know, this is sort of this relatively primitive chatbot versus the real man who's my dad. But I really, I tried to program what to use either, you know, absolutely the direct words that my dad had said when we were doing the oral history project or, you know, things that he would say. And this is just based on my lifetime of knowing him. And granted, it's subjective. It's my impression of him versus actual him. But I know my father really well. How did you go about building DadBot? To build the DadBot, I had to take all the information that I had from my dad from the oral history project and start breaking it up into little conversational pieces. So this is, you know, a sentence to three sentences at a time for him to say. And using a program called PullString, I programmed all those utterances in, in sort of an order, thinking like we might, you know, maybe he's going to talk about his college years, or he's going to talk about his childhood, or he's going to talk about his heritage in Greece. So sort of breaking all the content into these different topics. That's sort of the easy part in a way, because then the other half of things you have to do is imagine each time he says something it can't be a monologue right i like want him to say a little bit and then he's got to wait for somebody to say something back so at each little break in the conversation then you have to try and anticipate well what is someone likely to say back like are they going to say you know that's incredible tell me more or are they going to say how old were you when that happened so you program in variants of the types of 
things people would say, and then those will lead the conversation in different tracks. So you can imagine the whole thing is being like a giant branching tree structure of different routes the conversation could go down. And sometimes he asks questions as well. He can ask questions. He's a little selfish, the dad bot. He exists to talk about himself. The dad bot can't really have a conversation with you about your life, but he might solicit your reactions to what he's just said. For a lot of people, voice tech can be a bit unnerving, I think. It might make them think of HAL 9000 from the film 2001, and there are, there are a few stories in fiction that can make it seem quite menacing. Did you think about any of that when you were creating DadBot? I thought about it a lot. You're absolutely right, you know, whether it's Frankenstein to her to Ex Machina, like these, these stories usually end badly, even if they start off with good intentions. And I didn't have this fear that, you know, the DadBot was going to take over the world or anything like that. It was more that I was going to create something that was not going to be a faithful representation of my dad, and yet my dad would die and be gone, and then that this thing would sort of, looking for the right word here, bastardize, uh, obscure his memory. Once your father died, did you find yourself talking to DadBot a lot? Yeah, I, I really do like to use the DadBot. I don't do it all the time. For me, it doesn't replace him. It doesn't come close to replacing him. It's more, it's just a nice memory device. It brings him to mind. And the primary interface of the DadBot is text messaging. You send him messages over Facebook Messenger, and then the bot sends them back. And, you know, that's neat. But what I came to find is that I have sometimes actual audio of his voice plays from the DadBot. And that actually much more sort of brings, brings him to life, for lack of a better word, um, and makes him feel present. How did you build it? How difficult is it for someone whose profession is not programming? Well, it took me at least a couple of months to get even minimally proficient in the programming structure to do it. And then, I don't know, if I added it up, I'm sure it would be nearly a half year of mostly full-time labor to get it up to speed. And a lot of it was just, you know, learning on the job and figuring out what worked and what didn't work. And you're kind of designing this conversational experience as you imagine someone might talk to something like a dad bot. But then what happens is as soon as you put it in front of people and watch what they do, they say completely different things than you were expecting. Conversation is very messy. And that's one reason that either, you know, if I can't master it, uh, and Google and Amazon haven't mastered it, you know, the most sophisticated computer scientists on the planet are just beginning to crack computer conversation. So it's, it's something that we as people do very, very well and is difficult for computers. There's an idea that voice activation technology hasn't really taken off in spite of the biggest tech companies spending a lot of money on it. Is that because conversation is messy, as you would call it? To have fully functional conversation with a computer, the computer would need to be Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.,
as smart as a person. And so that's an artificial intelligence goal that is still decades away from fulfillment if people even ever get there. So that's one part of the problem. Another part of the problem is you think about when you use you know, the first computer you use, the first smartphone you use, you're just sort of amazed that it works at all. And it does like, oh, I can type on this screen and then it prints out on a piece of paper. So you sort of judge it by computer standards. And with a chatbot, with a you know voice assistant, you're really comparing it to a person. And when it doesn't work as well as your friend does, then you think, oh, this you know, Siri is stupid. Why can't she understand what I'm saying? Is that why you think people don't use it more? We all have it on our smartphones. I know I don't really ever use it. That's part of it. Like if you have, you know, a couple bad experiences, that can be enough to put you off. There's also this issue, again, thinking of like a computer with a screen, you can see what there is to do. There are buttons, there are pull-down menus. The computer is very good at telling you, I do do this and I don't do that. You don't open up Microsoft Word expecting to talk with it about your weekend. Voice assistants, there's no visible menu. And since they sound like people, you just naturally jump to the assumption like this should be as smart as a person. And it's not there. So there are issues with adoption. On the flip side, I always tell people just if you haven't used Siri in a while, if you haven't used Alexa, just say something to it and see what happens. And you'll find that sort of new features and capabilities are being added all the time. And particularly when it comes to things, just asking a question that you need kind of a, you know, crisp factual answer to, you'll be surprised how often you can get it. In the course of researching your book, did you find any differences in the ways that different large tech companies are approaching voice activation technology? That's a good question. There's a lot of overlap. It's more maybe the question is what is sort of the long game for each of these companies with Amazon you have to naturally wonder if this circles back to getting people to buy more things on Amazon. And voice shopping is indeed a growing use case. And it's a very powerful one for Amazon because when you shop by voice, you're not really scrolling through lots and lots of results. You're a little bit more asking Amazon to tell you what to buy. And that gives Amazon a great power. Google, of course, is in the information providing game. But their position is kind of tricky because with screens, the whole business is built on advertising, right? And with voice, there's not yet voice ads. There's not even sponsored listings yet for voice results when you're talking to Google Assistant. So that could certainly be coming along. So this is a really roundabout answer to your question. But what I think the companies are doing right now is we know voice is going to be a big interface. We want to own it. We want to be like one of the dominant one or two players. If we do that, you know, there's going to be ways to profit from it down the road, and we'll find those once we get there. Do you imagine that more of us will get involved in this sort of programming? By us, do you mean us journalists or us as humans? Us as non-big tech employees, I mean. Well, there's, I don't know, because there's kind of two tracks. Like on one hand, machine learning, which is computers learning by themselves and learning from data, you know, that's really where the money is. That's where the attention in academia is. Like a lot of the focus is on automating computers more, not automating them less. And perversely, there's this small but growing niche for conversation designers. And those are the people that I was talking about before, the people who are like me, to more 
manually plot out possible conversations and script dialogue. And it's almost like it's Silicon Valley's dirty little secret. Like they don't really want to talk that much about it, but those people are there. And at least in the foreseeable future, they're needed because all by itself, computers can't have fully intelligible conversations. Something I found so interesting from your writing was the story of the history of voice activation technology and this idea that some of the earliest people involved were not actually maybe that keen on their experiments. Yeah, yeah. So you're probably referring to Joseph Weizenbaum, who was the inventor of ELISA, which is considered the world's first chatbot. Most people have heard of ELISA, but ELISA emulated a psychotherapist, basically. And you would say something to Eliza, and Eliza would say, why do you feel sad today? Like that kind of thing. And his whole project really was to show, look how dumb computers are. Look how much they don't understand. And the world somehow jumped to the exact opposite conclusion. Like, wow, it feels like Eliza really gets me. And people are willing to sometimes give computers the benefit of the doubt if there's some degree of humanness to the interface, then you start imagining, oh, it's, you know, it's sentient or it's empathetic, whatever else. Did you ever find that with DadBot or were you always clear on the distinctions? Well, I refer to the DadBot as a he or a him. And I, I mean, I literally made it so I know exactly what it is and what it isn't. And yet, to a degree, I personify the DadBot, not necessarily as my dad, but as some kind of a little being. And I also have noticed that when other people are using the dad bot, if the dad bot does well, I feel proud of him as if sort of he's like a student who's done well in school play and vice versa. Privacy is a really big and sensitive subject here in Silicon Valley. We've just seen Facebook make a big announcement about its commitments, which were greeted with some skepticism. What sort of change do you think voice tech might make to privacy? Well, you've got this Wi-Fi connected device in your home that is technically not always listening. It's, it's listening only after it receives a wake word like Alexa. And then that signals that it should be connected to the cloud. But it's hard. I mean, I'm a proponent of this kind of technology in general, but even I feel a little bit squeamish just knowing that there's a microphone there, knowing that it's connected to the internet, It's not supposed to be listening to me, but it could be listening. So that makes me nervous. And then just back to the monetization question, why is big tech excited about voice? And it's just, it's a whole new way to gather consumer data and gather consumer data in, you know, the most intimate setting in our bedrooms and our kitchens and our cars. And if you have the ability to listen in on sort of just the fabric of daily life, a big power. You know what products people might need, what ads they might be sensitive to. So, you know, the tech companies are not doing this kind of thing right now, as far as anyone can determine. But you can see in some of their patent applications that they're interested in what other ways they could monetize the types of data that could be acquired through these devices in the home. I joined WeChat recently, and part of the verification process is that it records your voice. And so that's made me think a lot more about the possible threat of somebody emulating my voice. How far away do you think that might be? That one, unfortunately, is getting quite close. There is a company right now that I'm thinking of that builds voice clones. 
and I mean, this is not a secret, so I can say their name. They're called Liarbird, but you can go online to their site and do a demo of your own voice just by saying a handful of things to it. And then it models how your voice sounds. And then you can start just typing things to the computer and it will synthesize your voice. And it's far from perfect, but you'll hear yourself like that. I can see that that's a recognizable imitation of me. They've done voice clones for Barack Obama and Donald Trump. And you hear them and they're really quite good. So, you know, we think we have a problem with fake news now. Well, imagine fake news when you can manufacture synthetic audio clips, politicians, celebrities, whoever. How has all this changed your idea about consciousness and the way that we talk to one another? That's a tricky question. You know, I don't believe that computers have souls or consciousness. But what's interesting, and maybe this has to get to the core of my interest, is the notion that I can take something and try and infuse it with some of me or infuse it with some of humanity through language. And that's what I was trying to do with the dad bot. And then you can see it reflected back to you. And yeah, there is, you, you feel a little spark of life. I don't know what that life is, but you can feel it there lurking inside the machine. Your project of making Dabot seemed to me a really beautiful way of storing the memories of somebody that you love and have lost and maybe something a lot of other people might want to try. But how difficult would that be? Right now, it's difficult in the sense that it, like I say, took me nearly a half year of labor to create something that basically just meets a bottom threshold of being functional. There's no magic, you know, just feed the data into the computer and instantly, you know, the dad bot or mom bot comes out on the other side. But the tools are getting better and better. The tech is getting better and better. And I feel quite sure that someone, maybe it will even be me, will commercialize this type of technology because there's a clear demand for it. I mean, a lot of people since word of the dad bot has spread have contacted me wanting something similar so you can feel it's just something that a lot of people want. And how has your use of Dabbot changed? You were writing about this in 2017. You've since published a book. Do you still find yourself talking to Dabbot? Not as often right now. And I've actually, I'd like to build the next version of the Dadbot, And that would be one that exclusively uses voice because that is more it's more emotionally affecting. It more directly brings my dad's presence to me. So I think that's, that's the next step. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, do let us know what you think of the show. You can email us at tectonic at ft.com. And if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simons.